Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. We are talking about Connie Willis's book, Doomsday Book, winner of the Hugo and Nebula Awards. And so let's talk a little bit about the book, but from the perspective of politics and society. Now, when you look at this book, initially you may not realize how much political and social stuff is actually in it, because it looks just like a time travel science fiction book, and you can sort of say, where is the political and social stuff? But in reality, it's filled with stuff, so that's what we're going to be talking about, to how to get that political and social content out. But let's do a little bit of a recap of what the basic premise of the book is. So the Doomsday Book by Connie Willis is about time travel. Now, what I'd like you to do is to always, whenever you read science fiction, to always skip over the phrase that always comes to your mind, which is, but that's not possible. So whenever you think of something that's not possible, science fiction is based on the understanding that if you add 100 years, 200 years, 1,000 years, a million years, whatever, whatever you can possibly think of as a limitation, generating that phrase, it's not possible, will go away. So if you have something saying, but time travel is not possible, add a million years to whatever we have now, any limitation will probably disappear. So let's just take it at face value and say, what about this issue of time travel? The, the basic concept here is that they like to study history. So you're talking about Oxford University, and in Oxford University in Britain, they send people back historians, and they have a time machine that is particularly sensitive to disturbances in the timeline. So they don't want to have paradoxes formed. So the time machine is constructed in such a way that if they send someone back in time in a manner that could change a sequence of events that would affect the future, that means the current now at Oxford University, then the time machine won't do it. So they can only send people back to a relatively safe periods. And then there's also the constraints on the historians themselves, their own administration, uh, where they don't want to send certain people back to certain times because they, it's too dangerous in certain times. So if you send somebody back right into the middle of a war zone, well, that's a bad thing. Okay, so here we have a main, uh, a main character, Gibran, and she is young brand new at Oxford University, and she wants to go back to the Middle Ages. And they want to send her back to Britain in the Middle Ages, not too far from Oxford University, before the plague hits, the plague which was spread by fleas. And she wants to record what that era was like. And so they train her in the language of the time, they implant certain computer chip type things in her mind so that she can have language enhancements, which turned out to be extremely useful. And then when she is transported in back in time uh, and she's dropped into the spot, all hell breaks loose. Everything that was planned to be didn't turn out to be, and everything that old Murphy's Law, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And uh, one thing led to the next. Uh, the basic issues are that she was transported, but she missed the exact time she was supposed to go. She was, in fact, transported 50 years later than where she was supposed to be. She arrived in England just as the plague was entering England, and everybody's just before everyone started to drop like flies. And they were dropping like flies during the weeks, the few weeks that she was there. She was supposed to be there only for a few days, but back in Oxford University, they had another problem with disease. Another bad flu broke out, a flu that actually infected Kivern as well, and she ended up getting it when she was back in the old, back in the, uh, the, the plague days, and had me to recover from that first. But the, the flu destabilized Oxford so that they were not able to send the appropriate team back in time and get her and fetch her, so she was sort of stranded there for a little while until at the end of the book she was finally recovered. Okay, now that's the basic plot synopsis of the book. Let's start with the issue of her being sent 
originally, there was a young whippersnapper, a young woman who wanted to go back in time to the Middle Ages, causing all types of problems at Oxford itself. What do you remember was happening there? What were some of the issues dealing with that? that we might be able to think of in terms of political and social stuff. And you're going to see a common theme going through a lot of Connie Willis's work. What about that? Well, was everybody happy with the idea of Kibbren going back? Why were they not happy? Some people thought it was too dangerous and that they were putting Kibbren's life in danger for the sake of being able to say that they did it. That's exactly right. Why did they think it was too dangerous? Because there was so much stuff kind of going on in the Middle Ages in terms of cutthroats and the Black Plague that they had to do everything, you know, a very specific way in order to ensure that she would be okay. It was a very dangerous place. Did they normally send uh, other historians back to that era? What was it? What did they do? Um, it was normally considered a ten, which meant that it was too dangerous to send anybody back. But yeah. they, like, temporarily lowered the rating. Yeah, so how many people had they sent back previously to that spot? None. Pardon me? One. None, that's exactly right. This was the first. So, you're sending a very young woman back, the very first one, to this exact spot. So, what kind of feathers were ruffled? What department actually ended up sending them? Yeah, one and a, a different department than they normally handles the time machine sent it back, sent them back. Now, what was the? We're going to skip around in the book a little bit. What was the problem? What happened immediately after she was sent back? She got sick. She got sick. And who else got sick? The technician. What's that? The technician. The technician got sick, Badri. So, when the technician got sick, what was that all involved? How did he get sick? And and how did Kivrin get sick? How did that disease actually start? They caught it from the excavation of uh, a tomb in the city, which, like the, the archaeological dig that was on the city that Kimmel was supposed to be going to. So basically, the, the virus had been lying dormant for 700 years uh, on site, and Kimmel and Battery had gone to dig there prior to the sending back in time. That's exactly right. So there was a, uh, a virus that was dormant, that was inside a grave. And they were digging in this archaeological dig in graves. And they dug up and they ended up digging up this virus. And it was a virus that really people in modern day hadn't been exposed to. So there was no immunity. So it caused an epidemic, a very fast epidemic. It wasn't the plague, but it was a nasty virus, sort of like a really bad bird flu that uh, was there. Now, <clears throat> this is actually interesting because there may be other places that there's always conspiracy theorists saying that there are other places that this is this is existing, but officially, according to the books that they allow common people to see, where are the only supplies of smallpox? Right here in Atlanta, CDC, stones throw away, and under lock and key, they say, what's that? And in Russia. There's smallpox in Russia and uh, also here. Okay. Well, that was basically the situation few decades ago when somebody in Egypt ended up getting a small box out of the clear blue sky. And you can sort of say, well, how'd that person get a small box? You see, a virus is never really eradicated. You can sort of say, no, it's the last, there are no people with smallpox. 
And the only smallpox smallpox things that exist are in CDC and someplace in Russia. Well, the reality is viruses are actually very small and they float around. They do not consume energy, so they float around forever. (laughs) And you can have a virus, and certainly with smallpox, you do have viruses, smallpox viruses, that are simply floating around, but they are in such small numbers that they never actually connect with the person. Do you know how small a virus is? What if you have just a few of them floating around and they're in the Nile or in the middle of the ocean? Do you know how long it's going to go for a long, long time before that little virus actually gets to somebody where who's, who's susceptible to it? It can be a long, long time. So we can be in a situation in which we say, smallpox has been eradicated, but that little bitty bugger is floating around out there. And it may take a hundred years, it may take two hundred years, it may take a thousand years before that little bitty burger finally gets to somebody and they eat a chapati that has the smallpox virus in it and off they go and smallpox is back. That's one of the arguments for not making the smallpox uh, sample that exists in CDC and the one in Russia completely extinct, meaning there are those who want to destroy it. There are those who say, let's just get rid of it and that's the end of it. We don't have to worry about smallpox anymore. The other, other people say, oh no, don't be so sure. It could pop up. And if we ever need to create a vaccine for it, if we don't have supplies for it, the only way we're going to get supplies for it is by wading through hundreds of thousands of people that have it suddenly because no one has an immune system for it anymore. How many of you have been vaccinated for smallpox? Pardon me? You think so? Yeah, it's, it's possible. Are you sure you're vaccinated for smallpox? How many people? How many people are definitely not vaccinated for smallpox? About half of you probably. There's a whole bunch of you who have not been vaccinated. They don't vaccinate for smallpox uh, routinely anymore. I mean, my son is a year younger than you, and he's not been vaccinated for smallpox. They stopped doing that. So, because you know, smallpox is not supposed to be there anymore. So, if smallpox was to be I mean, I was vaccinated for smallpox way back in the old days, uh, but I don't know when they stopped it. Some years back, they stopped it. Not too many years ago. They, they kept on vaccinating and vaccinating. Are you sure you've been vaccinated for smallpox? You're too young to be vaccinated for smallpox. Well, I don't think I was vaccinated for smallpox. I don't think I have been. You don't think you have been? Who thinks it? Alexander, were you actually, for real, vaccinated for smallpox? How many people here actually know they were vaccinated for smallpox, for sure? Probably available on request. Yeah, I mean, mumps, rubella, and things like that, you've been vaccinated. What's that? They required it back then. Okay, that's why I was thinking that maybe they did it in China. I would bet most of you, you're sure you have been vaccinated? My mom is really. Pardon me? My mom, like, asked for it. Oh, she asked for it. Just in case a terrorist (laughs) attack or something like that. I would bet that most of you are not vaccinated for smallpox. So if smallpox was re reintroduced, say, 25, 30 years from now, almost the entire world population would not be vaccinated for smallpox. And as you get that happens, then it could run like a wildfire right through the population. I mean, just like a wildfire, really fast. It'd be very hard to contain. And there would be no vaccines. And especially if they didn't have any smallpox stores in CDC or in Russia, they're really in deep trouble. So, the whole idea with this archaeological dig in the Doomsday Book, outside of Oxford, is that's a very real political issue. People are really concerned about dormant viruses, viruses that they say can't affect us. But the reality is whenever you dig in an archaeological dig, you actually are (laughs) bringing up that possibility of introducing a virus into into the ecosystem, which people would simply not have immunity doors because it was just it was around too long ago all right what does this have to do with space travel disturb the machine alter altering the time was that it disturbed the machine it disturbed the machine
machine, the time machine. No, what does the idea of viruses have to do with space travel? Disease, things like that. Go ahead. Like if we, uh, like if aliens or we ever come in contact with another civilization, then they're going to have viruses that no human immune system has ever dealt with. That's exactly right. That's the big concern. There are two concerns. One is when we send spaceships other places, like Mars and other places, there is a concern that we are introducing life to those systems. Because it's really hard for us to completely sterilize a spaceship. I mean, we send a spaceship on top of a rocket into space. It goes up there, and like it's floating through our atmosphere. I mean, like it's flying through clouds and all types of other stuff. And there's air and other things inside. Now, they try their best to sterilize these things. If you see people who are working on these spacecraft beforehand, they look like they're in these hazmat suits that are reflective and stuff like that. In reality, that's what they are. But they're not trying to protect themselves as much as they're trying to not introduce biological stuff from their breathing to these spacecraft that are going to be going up. Part of it is a hazmat component to it as well, but they're but they're very concerned about putting you know bacteria up there. And then when they get the spacecraft into space, they try to rotate it around to that the sun's rays, which are ultraviolet, because they don't have the um, atmosphere at that point to protect the ultraviolet rays. So they try to rotate the spacecraft so that the sun rays covers most of the outside of the spacecraft, trying to sterilize the outside of the spacecraft from stuff going up. But you can't really be sure. I mean, air is air, and it's a slippery thing, and a little bugger can get in there and sort of hang in there, and then sort of... So whenever we send the spacecraft to Mars, we're really risking the idea of introducing some form of bacterial life to Mars. But what they're also concerned about is spacecraft that come back. Because if you take something there and come back, the only reason people may say, why should that be a worry, there's no life on other planets, if they're assuming that there's no life on other planets, that is a real hope and a prayer. It has nothing to do with science. If you take a spacecraft and put it on Mars, grab a chunk of rocks, or the moon, grab some rocks, bring it back, and then open it up, you really have no guarantee that there's not something there. And if there is something there, what is the chance of the, of the, of the human uh, immune system having anything that would be relevant to it? It would be pretty close to zero. So with spacecraft, space travel, you're dealing with the exact same issues. The idea of contamination across time is exactly the same as contamination across space. And so this issue of contamination is huge. And if you're ever going to go into archaeology, digging up old things, that actually is an issue. Most archaeologists don't worry too much about it. They don't wear hazmat suits when they're digging up. If you go out to uh, northern Lake Turkana, where Richard Leakey has a, uh, a dig going on, it's being operated with the Stony Brook University in New York. Well, those people are just out there with their hands digging things up, and they're digging up bones that go back, you know, hundreds of thousands of years and so on. So people don't do that with hazmats. But it is sort of a thought. When you're digging up old stuff, you know, what are you actually digging up? If you're having a bone, if you dig up a bone from something, is there a possibility that there's some viruses in that? Anyway, so that issue is is an issue. Sometimes it's concerned uh, with current day politics and sometimes it's not. Now let's bring it up to current day politics. Epidemics. Most of you are saying, well, we don't really have to worry about too many epidemics. We have flus occasionally. Some people get the flu shot and things like that. But we are right next to CDC, right? So let me ask you, what are the plans that are in place? Now, in Oxford University, in the book, what happened? A virus broke out, right? Quarantine. Was that? It was quarantine. And it was immediately quarantined. Exactly. 
Now, how many people, when you read that in the Doomsday Book, thought that was a little bit of an overkill? Sort of weird. A virus breaks out and suddenly all of London is quarantined. All of Oxford is quarantined. No one can get into buildings. It happened last year with the swine flu. What's that? It kind of happened last year with the swine flu. With the swine flu? Yeah, but in the point of there's quarantine areas and people not being able to pass. Go ahead. No, I mean, uh, well, I was at a residential high school. Okay. Um, and anybody who had flu-like symptoms was... Immediately sent home. Okay, immediately um, like sent to home. the extent that if you went to the clinic, you basically got sent home. Um, so they were essentially quarantining anybody who, you know, came into the clinic with That's good. Symptoms. And it's introducing that idea of sending people home. But a real quarantine, you don't even send people home. Real well, quarantine, I mean, the police come out. It wasn't like the kind of quarantine they had in the book, but it was, it had the, they had the, the baby steps of being concerned about spreading, disease spreading. But what about real diseases? What about the rules of this government and the interaction of CDC should a real disease break out? What if a terrorist attack occurred and the terrorist had some buggers inside a vial. Do you realize if you had some really bad bugs inside a vial, you could just go down to one of the home, go, go down to one of the malls, take the escalator, and just sort of trip, 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 trip down the escalator, <laughs> walk home, and the Christmas season starts with a bang. Go ahead. Um, there's a book, a series of books by Ted Decker with mm -hmm. a similar plot. Yeah. yeah. I'm not finished with it, but yeah. Um, the main bad guy basically starts a pandemic to destroy the world. Yeah. Like he, what he does is he infects some people. He gives them a bunch of money and says, "Hey, go to the airport and cough on everyone you see." It's very easy to spread. What if you took a private airplane with this vial of stuff and simply opened up the window? If someone was in an airplane, what if you had a vial of bugs? you know, disease stuff, and you, like, open the window, and you're flying over Manhattan, and you just empty the vial out. Well, the reality is, you could spread and infect all of Manhattan in a matter of minutes. For some, I mean, it's really easy to do this. Okay? So, it's a big issue. Now, the government knows this, so they have plans. What are the plans? You see, you don't know. Okay, oh, do you know? You, what do you know? What's that? Well, they do have plans to save the president. But what other plans that the government has to do exactly what Connie Willis is talking about in the Doomsday Book that you probably don't know but are there? How was the quarantine supposed to be done? Are you guessing or do you know? I have no idea what the actual plan is done. How many have heard that there is a plan? You've heard I don't know what it is. You don't know what it is? Well, um, the plan has been already fully established. And it took a while to get everything signed into law to allow it to happen. It started a few administrations back. Uh, it started under the first Bush regime. And then it was signed sort of into, into the get-go position under the Clinton administration. And then under the new Bush, under the second Bush regime, it was sort of solidified, and it was finalized under the Obama regime. All the different places. And all the different spots are how to declare martial law in the United States and how to quarantine things. All that stuff has been worked out. For example, if there was a national emergency of the type we're talking about, all the laws have been worked out, set up, signed in, in order to completely bring the military onto the streets and put a lockdown on everything. Most people don't know this. Some people who do know this are the editors for the New York Times, which wrote about it, which said they were following these regulations and everything. For example, the very last thing that was done, done under the Obama administration, was to get FEMA out of the loop. Remember the Federal Emergency Management Administration? Well, they wanted to get that out of the loop totally because that was so incompetent during the Katrina place. 
during the Katrina thing, Hurricane Katrina. So what they did is they got that totally out of the loop and instigate, inst instituted a system which sort of a hybrid system, which is half military and half civilian at the very top. And it's a martial law type of thing, basically operated by the military with some civilian oversight, no democracy whatsoever. FEMA is not in the loop whatsoever, and they didn't even tell FEMA when they did it, meaning they were so disgusted with FEMA, they just wrote them out of the loop and didn't tell them. FEMA had a plan, some type of a, uh, of a, of a practicing they were going to uh, do, and then they were stopped from doing it, and they said, what do you mean we're stopped from doing it? This is our job. And they said, no, you've already been written out. And they said, no one told us. That's how bad it was. So uh, the basic thing is that if a highly volatile disease like smallpox or anything like that is discovered anywhere, the rules and regulations are already set in place that there's a complete lockdown. That means troops out in the streets, you cannot leave your home, you can't go to Kroger's, you can't drive, you can't get out. It's not like that, that there's like some type of process that they'd go through and Congress would have to pass something. Everything's been signed, everything's been sealed, all the laws have been signed, everything's over. There's a complete lockdown, complete shutdown, and it would be immediate. Some people are concerned about this, that this could be instituted in a situation in which it may not be fully warranted. So people are very sort of concerned about potential freedoms. But nonetheless, all the rules have been signed, sealed, and put in place. And the very last step was during the Obama administration. So you can't blame it on the Republicans or blame it on the Democrats. It's been ongoing for four administrations, and the most recent one is the current administration. But nothing else needs to be done. All the rules have been done. So when that is all done, then it's sealed. Now, part of the information I got for this came from CDC itself. You see, I have some friends and neighbors who are CDC employees that are high up. And what we talk about when we're talking about daycare issues with our children and what high schools and colleges are going to go to, they also talk about you know, the latest scuttlebutt that's going on inside CDC, and the inside stuff in CDC is all the rules and regulations that they're being prepared to do uh, when such an event does occur, and what the martial law will actually be like. And so this stuff doesn't even get to the New York Times. But all of the rules and regulations are there, and they are exactly like what you read in Connie Willis's book. So when you read Connie Willis's book, you're actually getting something that's not fiction from her mind. That portrayal of how Oxford was locked down, people couldn't get in, the trains were stopped, police cordoning off everything, people couldn't get in or out, that is exactly what the government has planned. Not like something that they have to dream up and try to make it work, but it's already done. It's already set in stone. That's exactly what they would do. And I have not found a book yet that described what is actually planned as well as Connie Willis's Doomsday Book. That's one of the reasons I like you to read it, because it's the best portrayal of what is actually written down in the books, on the law, in regulations, here in the United States, and I presume elsewhere as well. I'm just I'm assuming the United States is not the only place, because you have to deal with these types of you know you know horrific situations when indeed they occur. So. That's a very interesting political aspect, and one of the most crucial things about that is that it's an aspect that most people don't know about. One of the things you found out in this book is that when the quarantine actually occurred in the book, did you notice how surprised the civilian population was? They were saying, what do you mean, quarantine, that we can't do this and we can't do that? Meaning the population didn't know that this was possible, that this could happen, yet it did happen. And they were rudely sort of confronting the situation by being stopped by the police and the trains and not being able to go certain places. So the people that you see out there on the streets, they're similar to you before this class. If it ever did happen, you would have no idea what was taking place. Suddenly there's police all over the place, quarantine, lockdown. They do drills to make sure all of this is properly prepared for in order to be able to lock down a place. And um, one of the things that we were talking about with my neighbors and friends who are CDC employees is that's why they have stocks of food in their basement. <laughs> they literally do. Some of the CDC employees 
uh, maybe not the lower level people, but the upper level people, they literally have basement storehouses with tons of canned foods and stuff like that. And why? They said, because this place could be locked down in the blink of an eye. And if it's locked down in the blink of an eye, you will not be able to go anyplace. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And they said, the rules are already set in stone. CDC knows exactly what to do, and this is what's going to happen. And so they actually buy food and other stuff. They, uh, The basements that I have visited have a whole bunch of gallon jugs of water and uh, cans of food, things that will stay around for a long period of time. No, they don't eat the stuff. They just stick it there, dried food, cans of food, stuff like that, and they just sort of store it in the basement, just if such a thing should happen. Uh, I must admit that it started up big time, sort of near the end of the Bush administration. That's when they were really sort of stocking up some of these employees. I haven't heard of them refurbishing their supplies, although I do know of a CDC employee who uh, refurbished the basement uh, for long-term stays, just in case they had to live in the basement where the supplies were. Okay, so that's a very interesting political aspect to the book that is very relevant to the current time. I told you more about this than we would, than in terms of rather than discussing it, because I assumed that you didn't know much about it, but it's a fascinating aspect. And if you do do a, a Google, actually if you go to the New York Times, nytimes.com, and do a search for editorials for this type of thing, search for editorials on martial law and quarantines and stuff like that, you will pick up some editorials. New York Times follows this stuff, and they have an editorial desk that sort of thinks this is a curious thing. Not that it's being done by the government, but that it's not being publicized by the government. So very few people actually know that all that stuff is is in there. Okay. Now let's get back to the controversy aspect to this thing. Once Kivrin actually goes to the Middle Ages, gets sick because she was infected with the same flu that everybody in Oxford got infected with because she was working at the archaeological dig before she went to the time travel thing. And then she recovers. What do we find about the people that are there? Tell me a little bit about what it was like. What was the... How, uh, how was it in terms of who found her? The initial person that found her. It's finally revealed at the very end. The priest, yeah, Father Roach. So, he found her and he brings her back to a family that was staying in a very small section, a little small little village area. Why were they there? Remember they had been brought there by the husband of the wife, and then the husband had gone, and they were waiting for him to come back. Go ahead, who said? Oh, yeah, you got to speak way louder. Yeah, he was, he was bringing the family there, because elsewhere where they had been, there had been this plague spreading. And he was trying to protect his family from the plague by getting them to a place where the plague had not yet hit. And they didn't really know what the plague was. But they did know that it was spreading, and so he was trying to protect them. What was um, Kevin's ability to explain to these people what was actually going on? How easy was it for her to explain almost anything? Now, there were a couple different types of people. There were older people, the ladies, the men. Was she even able to, how was, how was her ability to talk with some of the men? She could talk to Father Roach. Like, um, she was trying to talk to Gallon, and he was basically not listening to anything she said. Like she was trying to tell him that he needed to take her back to the place where he found her. He just kept saying, you know, I brought all your stuff. Okay, but now, when she wanted to talk with him, could she just walk up and grab him and talk no. to him? What was the issue? 
it wasn't considered proper for her to talk to him. Yeah, so there were social did, constraints. Yeah, she did try and find a time when nobody else was around. Yeah, there were social constraints. There were things that she was not allowed to do or not proper to do. Or if she did go up to a man and actually start talking to, to the man, she would be considered what? A loose woman. Or a possible what? Witch. Or a witch. Yeah, that was a big concern. A loose woman or a witch. What do you think about that in terms of who can make some comments about generalizations based on that? Try to think. You come into the, this new this area, and suddenly you there are certain people you can't talk to. You can't talk to men. You can be accused of being a witch. In general, what kind of a if you were look if you were an alien from outer space and coming in and seeing this happen, what would you how would you describe? the society that you were looking at. What are the dynamics? You're trying then to explain to one of your co-workers. Let's say you're watching on this uh, television type screen, this thing happening down below you, and you're trying to explain it to your co-workers what's, what's going on. You're trying to explain this society. What would you say? Go ahead. You were going to say something? Oh, I thought you were going to. Were you going to say? Go ahead. We speak loudly, Doctor. Very efficient. Inefficient, of course, yes, it certainly is inefficient, but what else? It is very uh, rigid society and straight hierarchy. Perfect. Look, rigidity in the society with a very strict hierarchy. What does that tell you about the society in general? Compare it to Oxford. Well, if Kevin wanted to talk to somebody at Oxford, could you just go up to somebody and talk to them? Okay, yeah. But there, there was rules that she had to go through. She literally couldn't, even if it meant saving her own life, getting back to the drop zone so that she could be transported back to her own time. Even something that important, she couldn't violate some of these rules for fear of being accused of being, you know, a wanton woman or being, uh, and then being thrown out or having other things or, or being burned at the stake as a witch or something. So this rigidity with this hierarchy, what implications do we have of that that are relevant to us? What can we draw? See, you're getting in a situation there where something is an extreme situation, and it's very tempting to say, okay, that was really weird. That was way back in the Middle Ages. They were really screwed up. There's that temptation to do that. But they were humans. The only thing that varies is degree and form degree and form. What does that tell us about, pretend you're that alien in a spaceship trying to explain to her or his co-workers what's going on in this human society down below? Rigidity, hierarchy, how does that relate to politics, to society, to dealing with humans? And how did it relate to the more modern stuff that was going on at Oxford. Well, with, uh, for example, with dealing with uh, modern-day politicians, the only way an individual can deal with them is to either get a petition started and get enough names and send that to an office and wait for a response, or to just send a letter to a politician and then wait for a response that may or may not have any change or impact whatsoever. So it's hard for an individual to influence personally his or her own standings. You're actually getting at an interesting aspect, which is the difficulty that people have in getting a response from authorities. And one way is through petitions, but there are many other ways. But what is the general rule, the general statement that Connie Willis is really focusing on in this book? There's still hierarchy. Hmm? There's still hierarchy. What about the hierarchy? We still have a hierarchy in our society. If you are not the same way that Kevin's experiencing it in the Middle Ages, but like, it's still not acceptable for you to walk, just walk up to some people and start talking. We don't just walk up to politicians and start having a conversation like we would to the 
Yes, that's all there. Go ahead. Does it have to do with the point that virginity in a society makes it more weak and susceptible to kind of falling apart when it's presented with a challenge that it's not prepared for? That's interesting. There are weaknesses that come about because of the rigidity. Um, that's sort of a consequence of it. But what is Connie Wilde saying about the nature of human organization? You see it in an extreme form in the Middle Ages, but you also see it happening at the Oxford University in the mid-2000s. when the other time period is, the more modern time period. And you also see it happening in our society. <clears throat> what causes the rigidity? Okay, when Father Roach finds Kevin at the drop zone the first time, she's sort of like a shimmering light. He sees her appearing. What does he think about her? That she's an angel. That she's sent from God, an angel to come help them in their most dire hour. What did that tell you? Religion well, is still very important back then. What's that? That religion is... The religion is very important back there. And what is religion based on? What is religion? What is the fundamental component of all religion, the thing that supports all religion? And if that is gone, religion collapses. Orthodoxy. What's that? Unknown. Unknown, partially. What's that? Life after death, right? Because it doesn't matter. Okay, but what what about life after death? What does the religion have to do with life after death? The only way you can get to the life after death is if you obey the religion. Okay, so you're getting at it. Fear that there is life after death. Go ahead. Fear that there isn't life after death. What's that? Fear that there isn't life after death. Fear? There are some good people and some bad people. That there are good people and bad people? But what, how does the religion... If you have only enough of it... Hierarchy. Hierarchy. The religions are filled with hierarchy. Orthodoxy. There's an orthodoxy, but what about the thing? What is the, the fundamental component Belief. of all... What's that? Belief. Belief. With all religions, they're all based on faith, on belief. Belief systems. All religions have that as their fundamental component. Without the belief system, the religion itself falls apart. And that's because there's nothing logical about a religion. For example, if you look at the development of Christianity over the over the uh, years since its inception, you'll see that it developed sort of piecemeal. Every century or so, new components were added. New levels of orthodoxy were added. And then you had the development of doctrine, church doctrine. Until eventually, there's canon law. <laughs> eventually, you have the law of the religion, where this is what God said, and this is what God meant. And you have Jesus, you have the Holy Ghost, and you have God, a trinity, which makes it a polytheistic religion. And then Christians, realizing that doesn't sound too cool in the modern day, say, no, it's really three in one, so it's monotheistic. But in reality, it's a polytheistic religion. And it has ties that go all the way back to the spread of Christianity in a Roman Empire situation where they had multiple gods and they had to compete with situations like that where they had multiple things. And in Christianity, you have multiple entities that you can pray with, pray to. In Catholicism, they have all types of saints that you can pray with, pray to, the Virgin Mary, the whole thing. And you have uh, all, uh, you know, have at least three entities in all versions of Christianity, Jesus the Holy Ghost and 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 and, uh, and God, three separate entities mixed to, uh, mixed together into one big soup that you call the unity in one. But nonetheless, you have three separate entities, and people do pray to Jesus, and they do pray to God, and they do pray to the Virgin Mary, and they pray to this saint and that saint, and do all types of wild and crazy things. But it's now law. And how you know did Jesus ever say anything about all that stuff? It's, <laughs> There's no historical evidence to suggest that he ever said anything about all that stuff. So, but how did it become that way? How did it become so that if you, almost no matter what religion, uh, Christian religion one joins, you encounter that concept, those concepts of at least the Trinity, 
how did that happen? Evolved over a system of time, and then a belief system was structured. And that belief system produces an association with faith, and one has to simply take it on faith for that to occur. But none of this stuff originates in a single time point. It develops over a time period. So what you have that Connie Willis is talking about is a very rigid belief system within the Middle Ages, a relief, uh, belief system with respect to gender roles, who can talk with who, a belief system that's very rigid with regard to religion, a belief system that's very rigid with regard to the politics of the day. Remember, there's a conflict going on of who uh, they were sending emissaries out to some king and trying to get favors and all types of things. Very strong belief system all throughout society. Now let's go to the modern period. Are we then free from the belief system in the mid-2048 or something like that? What kind of belief systems do we have there? Give some examples of some of the belief systems that's going on in the modern period and how that's structuring the society. What about within Oxford itself, with regard to the control of the time machine? The um, at the beginning of the book, at least. Um, mm -hmm. Because this other group decided that they're going to do a job that, um, yeah, generally, um, is like freaking out because they haven't done all the tests and things that they, that the normal group would have done beforehand to ensure convincing. There's a bit of an internal bureaucratic war going on about who's controlling the time machine and a lot of accusations about the data tests and things like that going on. What else? The belief system now is in like a specializ uh, specialization of tasks and people are assigned certain roles and, it's, and we depend on them to do like certain functions and that's their only purpose uh, So it's, a, it's more rigid. Like, you know, we have the dentist, we have our, like, the, the technicians, the historian researchers. It's just more rigidity. Actually, that's a good point. You have, you have roles in the society that people fall into. It's more than just historians. There's the police roles that are supposed to allow people or not allow people through the through the barricades, the, the quarantine area. You have doctor roles. You have political roles. You have mid, the, the roles of the department at medieval, the history department as compared with the history department. You have different roles in that society and you have different belief systems. One of the very funniest elements that Connie Willis introduced is, is, a, is a mother who has a very rigid belief system near the end where she interferes with all types of things that are going on. Do you remember that near the end of the novel? Who's that? Whose mother is it? You have to speak louder. Is it the same one they referred to at the beginning of the book? Yeah. Um, yeah um, the, the issue is that um, she shows up. Um, there's a few people that are sort of funny. Some of them is a, it's a, uh, Mrs. Gadsden. And um, the issue is that... What, what did Mrs. Gadsden used to do? What was her big thing that she used to do when she... What did she used to read to everybody? The Bible. Hmm? The Bible. The Bible. She would read the Bible sort of constantly. And she was a real pesterance in terms of dealing with people. Um, but how would you... What, what was the sort of the opposite of, of Mrs. of Mrs. Gadsden? She was the most rigid in her thinking. And who was the most loose and frolicky and free spirit, especially near the end of the book? Colin. The young underage kid who actually went... Um, 
back to help with the retrieval of Kirbin from the from the Middle Ages. But the contrast between Mrs. Gadsden and Colin is not just for theatrical purposes. The contrast is very much along the lines that we're talking about here. She uses, Ghani Willis uses both Colin and Mrs. Gadsden to sort of show opposite ends of the spectrum. Colin, uh, where, where Colin, on one hand, is totally free of belief systems. And when he's confronted with the idea of a, you know, of a disease producing a quarantine, what's his response? He thought it was the coolest thing and he didn't want to miss out of it. And he broke into the quarantine area and area in order to be sure that he was in on the action. And when people said, make sure you wash your hands and make sure you don't do anything, what was he always chewing? And then when he was finished chewing it, he would take it and stick it in his pocket. And then when he wanted to chew it again, he'd pull it out with all the dust and put it back in his the most unsanitary type of situation. But this type of stuff you get with kids, what was it called? What's that? It's called the gobstopper. They actually make those. They're delicious. Oh, they do? Yeah. <laughs> the gobstopper. Okay. Well, the point is, he was totally free of all of those fears. Well, that's the last thing I want to leave you with. There is one element that reinforces the belief systems. One emotion that reinforces the belief systems anywhere you get it. And this ties back to the beginning of the talk when we were talking about the U.S. government's plans to clamp down and everything. To make everything work, to make Kibrin behave herself back in the Middle Ages, to try to get Colin to behave himself. What Mrs. Excuse me, Gadsden was trying to do to everybody else in her own way is to instill, to manipulate one emotion. And what is that one emotion? Fear. It's the one emotion that controls societies. Fear. It is the thing that is the backstop behind all elements of social control, no matter what element that may be. In the absence of fear, there is no control. There's no control over In the absence of fear, you have Colin. Now, what I'd like you to do between now and Thursday, I'll have your papers back on Thursday, and I'll give you those back for Ender's Game. But between now and Thursday, I'd like you to think, as we have started this book, this book is a tougher book to sort of pull out, but I'd like you to start to think about issues like that we have been drawing up here, issues relating to social control, to fear, the use of fear, manipulation, in all contexts, not just in the Middle Ages, but in the current time period. And to see aspects of this book, perhaps with good passages that you can read, to bring those things out. Now, what I'm asking you to do is not just to find elements of fear and social control. We've talked about stuff like that. I'd like you to try to think of new elements that are in this book. But we've gotten you along the way of how to start thinking about this. With Ender's Game, it was really clear. You had, a battle, you had a battle going on, a war going on, you had child soldiers, all the political stuff just sort of popped to the surface really easily. Here you have to dig a little bit further, but we've gotten you pretty much farther. What I'd like next time is for you to be all ready with one thing. Everyone should have one passage and one thing that you think is important in this novel that's relating to the types of themes that Connie Willis is talking about. It's more difficult than Ender's Game, but it's hugely profound. Actually, in terms of our current society, it's perhaps more relevant to our current society than almost any of the other books. See you on Thursday.